0: Well, we're starting tonight from Hebrews 5, uh, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 3. I imagine that you're going into Mondo's in Coatbridge on a Friday night. It's a nice thought. Uh, You're looking forward to a lovely, juicy steak, nice sauce on it, roast potatoes, Uh, You're hoping that uh, after the main, they'll have your favourite sweet on the menu. Maybe rhubarb crumble, sticky toffee pudding, something like that. Uh, But you go in and to your amazement, you see that nobody in the restaurant is actually tucking into any of these kind of things. Uh, Instead, you see grown-up people, uh, people in their late teens to late 60s, sitting at tables drinking milk and drinking out of these plastic cups with the the tops on and the the spouts. And when you sit down and you order your steak, you're told there's no steak on the menu any longer because for some time now there's been no demand. People just come in and they want (coughs) milk. You know, there will be something deeply troubling about that scenario. Uh, Not that there is anything wrong with milk. Milk is great, uh, milk is a great uh, food for infants, especially while they grow up and their digestive system develops. But you expect even babies to move on to solid foods as they grow older and for their appetite to become uh, a little bit more sophisticated. And so it's quite alarming uh, to find adults who are on a milk-only diet and can't handle solid Food. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews says has happened to his readers. We have much to say about this, says, but it's hard to make it clear to you, because you are slow to learn. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. It's quite a, it's a surprising twist uh, in the, the, the progress of the, the, the letter, actually, isn't it? You know, you're expecting uh, to, to hear a little bit more about Melchizedek, and we will hear a little bit more about Melchizedek, but it's almost as though the writer says, well, there's no point going any further because you're not able to take it in anyway. What's the point in teaching you about Melchizedek and the high priesthood of Christ when you really are infantile? Spiritually. The writer has been concerned about the Hebrews. He knows that they are under pressure. Uh, They're under pressure from the authorities uh, who have been persecuting uh, Christians. Uh, They're (coughs) under pressure from their friends who have stuck to Judaism and who are pointing to the the more uh, physical and visible elements that there are in Judaism Uh, He's been exhorting them to make every effort lest they fail to enter into God's rest. They are to fix their eyes on Jesus. They are to hold fast their confession. They're clearly in need of a lot of exhortation. Things are not going well with them. And then he says, you are difficult to teach me much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. He wants to teach them doctrine that will help them. Uh, You see, he he knows that what will actually help in this particular situation is teaching on the high priesthood of Jesus. Uh, They need something solid with which to uh, strengthen themselves in the face of opposition. Opposition without and within needs to have a Uh, a solid remedy superficial remedies for life's problems are never enduring we need to go to the word and dig deep and this doctrine would be particularly helpful for them they need to know that Jesus is sympathetic to those who struggle they need to know that they can come in prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ and out of his great resources he will strengthen them and bring them grace in their time of need. But that's involving engagement with the Bible. And sadly, the readers have no appetite for that kind of work. And it's a deep tragedy that this should be the case. We're going to look at the nature of this tragedy and then... uh, the objective of spiritual maturity and what that uh, is like, what that looks like, and then the question of how we make that progress, how we move on to maturity. When the writer speaks about their spiritual immaturity, he says two things essentially about them. He says that, first of all, they are slow to learn, and then secondly, he says they have a juvenile appetite. But they're slow to learn, first of all. And the word uh, is uh, literally they are lazy. And the word behind learn is is hearing, slow of hearing, slow of learning. The slow word, the slow part, is a word that was used to describe uh, the numbness in the limbs of an animal that was sick. So imagine an animal built for speed. Imagine an antelope that's sick. And it's lying on the ground and its limbs are numb so that when it's able to get up at all, it makes painfully slow progress. It's a distressing sight. These people are slow. They're lazy of hearing. They have lost interest. Now, isn't that a sad feature that Christians should uh, lapse into that attitude of being disinterested in the Word? It's really encouraging uh, to, to be in uh, a Sunday evening service which is w- relatively well populated by the congregation. You don't know how heartening it is uh, from this side of the lectern to, to see a good number of us out tonight because we're hungry for the word of God. But sadly, that is not the case up and down the land in Scotland today. It's one of the calamities of the, the, the contemporary scene in Scotland that evening services are being abandoned. People don't have the interest to go out. And that indicates a laziness, a lethargy, a lack of appetite. God has spoken in his word. We have a Bible we can read. There's a preacher ready to preach. Uh, But in many churches, the people simply would not turn up. It's not that they couldn't make it out. They're healthy enough, but they can't be bothered. They're lazy of hearing. Some of you uh, men who aren't into cooking may be in the fortunate position of having uh, a wife who cooks up meals for you when she is away for a few days. I hope that this isn't a totally fictitious (laughs) illustration. I know it happens in some situations. and Probably we guys should hang our heads in shame for being so pathetic. But imagine a wife coming back home and finding that the meals that were prepared are still in the freezer. And she asks the obvious question, why didn't you eat all that good food that I prepared for you? She's understandably annoyed. All this time and all this effort and all this thought uh, has been completely wasted. And the answer is, well... I just couldn't be bothered to go about the effort of of defrosting uh, the food. Well, after two or three days, the husband is beginning to see again through his swollen eye, and his limp is becoming less noticeable. And he has learned the lesson that good food is there to be eaten up with eagerness and with gratitude. When good food is provided, it's there to be used. (coughs) And we have the bread of life. We have the living word. We have the the manna from heaven that God gives us. How contemptible if we don't have the energy or the inclination to eat what God has given us and to grow in our faith. So there's this sluggish appetite, this laziness, this dullness. But it's also, secondly, a juvenile appetite. Hunger that is... Directed toward the wrong things uh, when we were in Stafford because we had four kids in the family, there were always uh, kids moving in and out of the of the house and uh, one, of the, one of the friends of, of our kids uh, would only ever eat cornflakes and milk. Uh, he was about thirteen, and he only ate cornflakes and milk. Now at one level, it was easy to cater for because you knew exactly uh, what. He would eat. But there's something kind of strange about that, that at that age you're only eating uh, cornflakes and milk for dinner. Whenever everybody else is having stew or fish or whatever, here's someone eating cornflakes and milk. And there's a time when basic teaching is appropriate and there's a time to move on and progress and to make the right choices, the right food. Let us leave behind the elementary teachings about Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of so-and-so. Leave behind the A, B, C's. Now, it's an interesting list that he makes, isn't it? The, the six items. Uh, I don't know that we would all itemise the basics of the Christian life as these, but uh, he does. Uh, in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, repentance from acts that lead to death. Acts that lead to death. In the New Testament, acts that lead to death are of two kinds. Uh, They are, first of all, the acts that are associated with uh, the pagans, acts of immorality, idolatry, obvious, out there, dead acts. It's that kind of of act. And there's also the, the, uh, the ritualistic religion of the, the Jews of Jesus' day, the Jews of, of these, um, these readers' day, where they were relying on the performance of, of going to the temple and performing sacrifice. And there, there was no faith that went beyond the, 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 the literal and the visible. They had become dead acts, And in our modern context, it means that we learn right at the beginning that we need to turn uh, away from two things. We need to turn away from irreligion, okay? So the, the, the immoral lifestyle, the life of license, of, of uh, living by nobody's rules but my own. But also we need to turn away from formal religion, you know, just going, going to church, giving my 50p a week in the offering, Uh, giving to charity, that reliance on good works dead works because they don't have faith in a saviour behind them, we repent we turn away from these dead works and faith in God is the positive act of trusting instead of these things in what God has done for us, so we turn from acts that lead to death and instead we turn to the living God and the son Jesus instructions about uh, baptisms. It's interesting, the plural word, baptisms. It's literally cleansings, but if we think of it as baptisms, it can mean a number of things. Baptisms. The the, the Jews performed baptisms when people came as proselytes into Judaism. They were baptized. John the Baptist had a baptism uh, for repentance, but John was Uh, before Christ and the cross and the resurrection. And then there was the baptism that Jesus gave his disciples uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there was some confusion in the early church. And you remember uh, in Acts 19, verse 1, there's an example of some Christians uh, confused over baptisms. Came about while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples and he said to them Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him No, we have never even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So, it's a strange baptism if uh, no instruction about the Spirit and no experience of the Spirit has been given. He said Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism." They needed to learn to distinguish between uh, baptisms. The baptism that John had administered uh, was for the period before Jesus. Jesus' uh, baptism signifies uh, a rising to new life, the water of regeneration. It's now baptism in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The laying on of hands signified the imparting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It seems in the early church it was often associated with baptism, associated with the setting apart of men for ministry. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment were basic teachings on the last things. We've got an example in 1 Corinthians 15 of people who were confused about the last things, people who were uh, denying a future resurrection, saying that the resurrection had already come basic Christian teaching that needs to be nailed down at the beginning. Essentially there's three categories amongst the six uh, we're to move on from the teaching that's basic to Christian conversion uh, faith and repentance we're to move on from teaching about the church and the sacraments we're to move on from fundamental doctrinal beliefs at like the resurrection from the dead and that, that is going to be a final judgment not that these aren't important but there comes a time when we can take them as a given and we can build on what we now all know and we all uh, assume one another understands. Why did the Hebrew Christians fail to move on? Well, there was this laziness, this this lethargy and it was also a juvenile appetite like like the, the teenager who eats only cornflakes and milk they were attracted to things which fascinated them because they were related to Judaism and especially at this time that there was a there was a branch of a kind of radical branch of Judaism uh, that lived in community by the shores of the Dead Sea a part of the Dead Sea scrolls uh, manuscripts that helped us to, to get back to some of the early uh, writings of, of Isaiah, got closer than we had before to the original copies of some of the Old Testament writings. And this was a group called the Essenes. And this group was marked out by uh, their interest in angels. They had some speculation of the end times. They believed that there would be two Messiah's coming Uh, they were into ceremonial washings now this is going on at around the same time and it's the kind of stuff that sounds well interesting you know and Christians the writer is saying are to be sure and certain about the fundamentals and not to be drawn away by things which are fascinating but speculative. On a Wednesday night, we are looking at this really good booklet, which is incredibly straightforward. It's called Just for Starters. And that's a really good name, because it, it's going through some essential Christian doctrines. Just for Starters. And it enables us to to really wrestle with what uh, these key doctrines are saying so that we all understand what we believe as Christians. It's just for starters. And of course the assumption is then that we move on uh, to build on top of these things. Not moving on to endless speculation because that's actually a sign of immaturity. If I, if I really wanted to, to make sure that this church would be packed out, maybe not on a a Sunday evening—that would be a bit adventurous—but on a Sunday morning, the thing, the way to do that uh, in in the the contemporary scene would be to uh, to have a sermon series on signs of the end times, and you could come up with all kinds of ways in which, uh, you know, the the. ...to build connections between the European Union and Babylon... ...or the Mark of the Beast and phone scanners... ...and all of these kind of things... ...and people flock to hear that kind of thing. And if you turn on the television... Uh, ...some of the so-called Christian channels... ...are full of these esoteric, speculative topics... ...and people are interested... Pickles are fascination, but it's a juvenile appetite. It's not spiritual food. There comes a time when Christians need to move on to solid food. Well, if spiritual immaturity is a tragedy of arrested development, what does spiritual maturity look like? What is it that is uh, the aim? What does it look like? Ephesians four eleven to sixteen uh, gives us uh, a good place to see what it is to, to no longer be infants but to, to grow up. Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Three elements. First of all, spiritual maturity is based on a mature and comprehensive understanding of the Bible. God has given people who teach the Bible, pastors and teachers, so that we'll have unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. He's given us Bible teachers so that together we'll grow up, uh, so that together we leave behind our immature fascination for the strange and unusual, and we'll be resistant to all of the the cross-currents of doctrine, to the winds that will blow people here and there. Spiritual maturity is built on the Bible. You move on from foundational truths about the gospel. Now, a point of of clarification here. When the writer is saying that (coughs) let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, that does not mean that you leave behind the the simple gospel the the gospel is really not simple, the gospel is variegated the gospel uh, is of continual application what it's saying is that we need to nail down the basics we need to know what it means to be saved why we have a problem what God has done about the problem what our hope is where we're going, what it means to belong in the church. But we never leave behind the gospel. To grow as a Christian means that you're applying the gospel, the the basic doctrines of justification by faith, to every area of life. You learn what it is to be released from uh, works righteousness and legalism and to have freedom in Christ. You're applying continually the gospel, adoption, into the children of God, into every area of life, so that more and more we're freed from hang-ups and insecurities and we grow up as mature Christians. So spiritual maturity is based upon the Bible. Secondly, it results in Christ-like lifestyles. So far from saying that uh, it's simply about filling our heads with Bible facts, It's saying that uh, um, a mastery of the Bible will lead to a transformed lifestyle, will lead lead to us being more like Jesus. People whose heads and hearts and hands are transformed by the Bible. Chapter 5, verse 13 uh, is quite significant because it tells us that an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. By implication, the mature Christian is. The mature Christian, uh, in verse 14, has taught himself to distinguish between good and evil. So spiritual maturity is demonstrated by the righteousness that we see in Jesus. And by contrast, spiritual immaturity is shown by infantile and 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 childlike behaviour. Spiritually immature people are recognised by their tendency to to sulk, to lapse into fits of temper and a refusal to play, (laughs) to get along with others when they don't get their own way. These are characteristics of immature spirituality. And then the The passage both in Hebrews and in Ephesians is telling us that spiritual maturity is something that's achieved together. Uh, In Ephesians, we're told that it's by the officers of the church given by God that we are equipped for acts of service and that we grow up together. Uh, In Hebrews, we're told that uh, one of the tragedies is that when people are spiritually mature, they fail to be teachers. Uh, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all (coughs) over again. So, one one measure of, of growing up in the faith is that we begin to impart spiritual wisdom, Bible teaching, to others. That does not mean should be obvious. It doesn't mean that everyone uh, has to get behind this lectern here and to, to preach in a formal way from the front. It does mean that a mature Christian can instruct and exhort and build others up informally. My own father though he was uh, an elder, a ruling elder in the church, uh, he, you know, public speaking wasn't his thing and he, he took a lot out of him whenever he had to lead a prayer meeting. But he did a huge amount of informal teaching when we were growing up as children. Uh, Informal teaching as we went for Sunday walks or did chores in the house. But if you're a spiritual baby, you're not going to have any impact like that on anyone around you. Uh, In fact, you may well... Disseminate your childishness to those who are around you rather than building people up. Spiritual maturity is, maturity is a corporate activity. We achieve it together. These are the characteristics of spiritual maturity. How do we make progress? How do we move towards that end? And we see that in seed form in verse 12. Sorry, verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Uh, notice several things from this, this uh, seed verse. First of all, uh, it mentions training uh, ourselves, learn to train themselves. It's kind of involved these days to have a personal trainer if you've got lots of money you can have a personal trainer and this person will coach you uh, in get, developing your healthy lifestyle and also in the church it, it can be good uh, to have people who will mentor on a one to one basis but here the writer is talking about the responsibility that all of us have uh, to, to train ourselves uh, in growing up in the faith Ultimately, responsibility lies with us. You are responsible for your daily uh, Bible reading habits. You are responsible for your attendance at the means of grace. Uh, you alone are responsible for making that commitment to move on and make progress in the faith. You are to train yourself. Second, it's by constant use that we grow constant use of what? Well, essentially, constant use of the, the Bible and the other means of grace. The word of God, the solid food that will uh, build us up, the solid food that is a teaching about righteousness. No shortcut to holiness. Again, it's a constant refrain, isn't it? Uh, the, the way to growing up in our faith is a well-thumbed Bible. A Bible that shows the evidence of constant use. Thirdly, it implies also that we make constant application of the truth. There is a, a, a solid Bible principle that if you put into practice what you learn from your Bible, God will give you more light on other parts of your Bible. If you fail to obey what God is already saying to you, you will have even what you have taken from you. You will go back in your understanding. Therefore, when you read about repenting, you grow by repenting of your sin. When you read about public confession of sin, you grow when you go and apologize to someone you've offended. When you read about not causing someone to stumble, you grow as a Christian when you refrain from doing something which would be misunderstood by a younger Christian. By constantly applying the Bible to your daily life, you more and more habitually learn to tell the difference between the good and the bad. You become more discriminating in what God wants you to do and so the real question I suppose is one that we all have to ask ourselves when we come to the end of of a sermon like this you and I have to ask ourselves am I making progress am I making progress and I know that's in some ways difficult to answer sometimes it's best answered by those who who know us best But there should be ways in which we can discern some kind of progress. Or we should be alarmed if we are uh, going backwards. If our Bible reading is more erratic this year than it was last year, that is a cause for concern. Am I witnessing more? Am I more eager to confess my sin when I'm aware of sin? Oliver Cromwell was said to have inscribed uh, in his Bible a In Latin, of course, all things were written in Latin uh, then, but the, the, the Latin inscription translated, He who ceases to be better ceases to be good. He who ceases to be better ceases to be good. In other words, if we're not moving forward, we're moving back. Let's avoid the tragedy of arrested growth and heed the exhortation to go on to maturity. Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, and we thank you that your word is truth, that it is food for our souls. Lord, grant that we may not, by our lethargy, our laziness, or a juvenile appetite, fail to feed upon this word, and so grow in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.